Hello, you're listening to the Sydney Writers' Centre podcast on writers and writing. My name is Valerie Koo and you can find us online at sydneywriterscentre.com.au. We're Australia's leading writing centre and you'll find a wealth of resources on our website and blog, including interviews with authors, writing tips and valuable ideas on how to get published. Whether you're interested in writing a novel, short story or articles for magazines, you'll find information and courses to help you get there. Or if you want to hone your business writing skills, we can help you too. Our presenters are the best in the industry. We hope you enjoy today's podcast. Today we're talking to award-winning author and one of our creative writing teachers here at the Sydney Writers' Centre, Pamela Freeman. Pamela is author of 19 books and her most recent, Blood Ties, is an epic fantasy which originally started as the thesis for her doctorate in creative arts. It's the first in a trilogy with the second and third books, Deep Water and Full Circle, coming soon. Pamela started as a children's writer and many of her books have been shortlisted for the State Literary Awards, the Children's Book Council Book of the Year Awards and many others. Pamela is also an accomplished scriptwriter and has taught creative writing at the University of Technology Sydney, the University of Sydney and of course with us at the Sydney Writers' Centre. She speaks at writers' festivals around the world and is best known for her series of fantasy novels, The Florimond Books, and a more recent book for young people, The Black Dress, a fictional account of the childhood of Mary MacKillop in Australia, which won the New South Wales History Prize for Young People. So, Pamela, thanks for talking to us today. It's my pleasure, Val. So tell me, how did you get so interested in the fantasy genre? I think it was my local librarian's fault when I was little. Really? Uh, she she was very big on legends and myths. Um, she had a lot, a, bit, a very big collection of folk tale and myth and legend. And she also bought every year a collection, the best SF short stories, mm-hmm. uh, which was a very influential collection worldwide um, and unusual to find in a local library at that stage in the 60s. Mm. So I was reading from quite an early age. I was reading a lot of um, fantasy-associated things, but also the best of science fiction and fantasy writers from around the world. Mm. So Mrs. Wall is the person (laughs) responsible. So I understand that Blood Ties started off as the thesis for your doctorate in creative arts. So when did you first put pen to paper for that and how has the story evolved since you first thought of it? The very beginning of Blood Ties, the, the very first chapter, was actually a short story that I wrote in 1996. Wow. Um, so it's been a long time evolving. And after I wrote that story, I was interested in the world that it was set in and I wrote another, maybe another 10 short stories set in the same world Right. and then didn't know what to do with them because um, it's very hard to sell a collection of fantasy short stories when you don't have a name already. And I put them aside. When I came to do the doctorate, um, I realised that the larger story that I was thinking about telling was in the same world. And so I began to integrate the stories that I had already written into the much larger narrative. Mm. Um, so it's, it's been a long time evolving and it certainly changed shape and direction as I was writing. Um, but it's been going in one form or another since 1996. So you've really lived in that world for the last 12 years, sort of? 
No. <laughs> <laughs> no, because I put the stories aside for quite a few years. Right. Um, and worked on a number of other books, notably The Black Dress, mm. um, which took me into an entirely different world, the historical world of Australia in the 1840s to 1860s. Mm. Um, but I discovered that writing history is very much like writing fantasy. And I think the work I did on The Black Dress actually helped me to write Blood Ties. So tell us a bit more about The Black Dress, which is a story about Mary MacKillop. What inspired you to write that? I was asked to write a children's book about her by the nuns. Mm -hmm. And I said no. Um, But Sister Kath O'Connor, who's a very clever lady, said, why don't you come and have a look at the museum before you say no? And so I went and had a look. And by the time I walked out of the museum, I was just fascinated by her. She's an extraordinary person. Right. And I'd been reading a book by Aung San Suu Kyi, you know, the um, Burmese democracy Mm. fighter. Yeah. And I'd been struck in that book by her lack of hatred towards the people who'd kept her imprisoned for the last 20-odd years. Mm. And her attitude to the generals is very much, they'll discover that they've made a mistake and then we'll be able to work together for the good of the country. And Mary McKillop was excommunicated by a bishop in um, her early career and she had exactly the same lack of anger. Mm. Um, A letter to her mother talks about the poor dear old bishop has made a mistake and that that resonance between the two women fascinated me. Mm. Um, The idea that there is no ego involved, what counts is other people and and the, the cause rather than yourself. And so I got really interested in her. But I realised that the book I wanted to write really wasn't for children. It was for young adults at at the youngest. And um, I wanted to write a book about how her childhood, how did he get a saint, basically? Mm. How did the childhood influence someone um, to the point where they can act so selflessly? Mm. And um, I think that story is not a children's story. It's a story for older teenagers and adults. And most of the people who've read the book have been adults, in fact. Um, and I've, I wrote it looking back. So she's actually dying over the course of the story and um, looking back on her childhood and particularly her relationship with her father. Mm. And writing history, you do have to create the world for your readers in the same way that you do when you're writing fantasy because it's not a world they're familiar with. Mm. And you can't assume any knowledge at all on the part of your reader, particularly if your reader might be 15, for example. Um, And so I think learning to write history did help me in creating the much larger um, world of blood ties. Did you feel a greater responsibility in creating that historical world? Oh, so much more. (laughs) Very scary. Mm. It was scary on two levels. Firstly, because... um, I was writing from the first person and so I had to pretend to be a saint and you know I'm not the devil but I'm not a saint and finding a voice that was believable was a very difficult technical problem Mm. Um, but also I knew that this was a book that would actually matter to people that there were people who believed passionately and cared deeply about Mary McKillop and that for them it had to be had to be truthful but also that quite often a person's first encounter with her might be through the book 
Mm. And I felt a great responsibility to her to portray her as as faithfully as I could um, without making it um, a literal hagiography, without making her look perfect because she wasn't perfect. You know, she had faults which she acknowledged. And um, to make her real, to make her come alive for the person and still stay faithful to what we know about her, mm. um, that was quite difficult. And it took me five and a half years to finish the book um, because I just, I just didn't get it right. It was, I rewrote it completely five times mm. before I felt that I was any, anywhere close to getting her right. Um, and, you know, people have been, the, the nuns and people who've studied her have been good enough to say that they, they feel that it's a faithful representation. Um, but it was tricky and mm. quite challenging. So when you start writing, particularly in um, the fantasy genre, what typically comes first for you, the character or the plot or something else? It's something else for me. Right. Uh, for me, it's the rhythm of the first line. Right. Which is not an easy place to start from. No. Uh, but Blood Ties, the, the first line just popped into my head. Um, the first line is, the desire to know the future gnaws at our bones. Mm. And that is a line that came into my head because I was waiting for my flat to be auctioned the next day. Right. And I was walking around the flat going, oh, I just want to know what's going to happen. I just want it to be over and know what's going to happen. And the line, the desire to know the future gnaws at our bones, just popped into my head. And I stopped still in the middle of my lounge room and thought, that's a good line, I'd better write that down. <laughs> and sat down at the computer and typed that in and then just kept going. Right. The story, the story just happens. And that, that happens to me with short stories in particular quite a lot, that it's actually the rhythm of the sentence that creates the world for me. Wow. Um, and don't ask me how it happens. <laughs> but then, of course, once you have that, then you have to start working on your plot and your character. Sure. And, and you still have to put all the work in about those things as yeah. you go. But the place that I start is usually with the rhythm of a particular sentence. Now, we did mention that you have your doctorate, a PhD, mm -hmm. in creative arts. Why did you decide to undertake that? And do you think that's um, an essential part for a writer's journey? No. It's by no means essential in any way, shape or form. I decided to do it for two reasons. Uh, and one was very practical and the other was artistic, I guess. Um, the practical reason was that I was at home with a young baby and I was no longer doing the consultancy work which had paid the mortgage um, um, and we, we didn't need my full-time job anymore but it would have been nice to have had a bit more money and they give you a scholarship to write a book <laughs> and if you do, you do your doctorate they pay you um, and so that's the practical reason why sure. I did it. Uh, it's a great deal for a writer because you get paid to write a book that you probably would have written anyway. Mm. And then at the end of the process, you get to sell the book. Fabulous. Uh, and, and the university loves it when you sell the book because then they get extra research points. 
so it's a very good deal for a writer and if anybody's in a position to do a doctorate I'd really recommend it just on the practical terms. But I also wanted to make, I wanted to write this larger story set in the domains and I knew that I would have some difficulty making the transition from children's writing to writing a very big story. I mean, we're talking eventually 450,000 words to complete the story. Whereas my longest book up until then had been The Black Dress at 60,000. Um, well, in fact, I hadn't even written The Black Dress at that point. My longest book up to then had been 35,000. So um, I, I thought it would be useful to have some guidance in making that transition. And I was lucky enough to get Deborah Adelaide as my supervisor, who is a wonderful writer in her own uh, world, but also a terrific editor. And um, she um, she was she pushed me very hard in directions that I needed to do to go, and I'm very grateful to her for that. So it was two reasons, you know, the money and and the guidance. Sure, and it is a book for adults, and as you say, it's your first book for adults, and you're about to release your second book in the trilogy. So how did you? Was it difficult to switch? your mindset from writing for younger readers to now writing for a much older group? And is there one that comes easier to you? It was harder than I expected right. to make that transition. And I was very glad that I had Deborah there. Um, my attention span is about eight years old. Mm-hmm. And I want to have things keep happening. That's my, my instinct is to have short scenes and lots of action and let's keep the story moving. Mm. And Deborah um, encouraged me to slow it down and to pull it back and to give more character and more depth and more reflection. And um, So I think, I think it's, in some ways it's easier for me to write for children in that the pace is more natural to me. Mm. Um, but I am enjoying writing for adults. Um, because you can do stuff that you can't do with kids' stories, things that they would be bored by. Mm. Um, and, and of course, it's a much more complex, much larger story mm. than you can do for children. So I enjoy both of them, and I, I intend to do both, to continue to write for both children and adults. Mm. But probably naturally, the kids' stuff comes more easily. Right. Well, you've mentioned that one of your books, Victor's Quest, is one of your favourites. What kind of feedback has it received and why is it one of your favourites? Well, it's my favourite because of Victor, who is a lovely character. He's a, he's a very sweet, kind, gentle and very stupid boy, young man. And the feedback that I get uh, has all, I mean, it was a shortlisted book, it was a book week book and um, so it's in all the libraries and it's often used as a class text. And I get a lot of letters from years three and four kids who who love him because he's stupid. Aww. And a lot of feedback from teachers saying um, that the boys who don't like to read sit up and pay attention when Victor comes on the scene. Uh, because stupid is a word that's used in the book and it's a word that you're not allowed to use in a school. You know, right. it's one of those politically incorrect words. Okay. Uh, but everybody knows that, that the kids who are stupid know they're stupid. Yep. 
And when they hear that word or they read that word, they can't believe that an adult is using it. Um, and they really get involved in the story because Victor stays stupid all the way through. Right. You know, he doesn't miraculously turn out to be bright at the end and just misunderstood. He is, in fact, a stupid person. But he's a very kind, truthful, brave, stupid person. And those qualities are what make him a hero. Um, and so kids, kids really do like him for that reason. And, um, and I think teachers like him because he's so sweet. <laughs> but um, it's certainly been the most popular of my books. It's been reprinted quite a few times and we are about to have a new edition come out in September. Right. Um, with uh, a new cover with Walker Books, which I'm very pleased about, uh, and a sequel next year, Victor's Challenge. Great. You've written about so many different types of things. Now, you've got a book, Scum of the Earth, about dumping toxic chemicals, which won the Environment Prize from the Wilderness Society. Now, what kind of research did you do for this book, and why did you pick this theme to write about? It was part of a series called The Network Mysteries, and the theme of that series, there's three books in that, Hair of the Skeleton, Scum of the Earth, and A Trick of the Light. And the theme of that was uh, networking in the sense both of community networking and um, online. And it was a lot of high technology there. Kids, three kids, kind of famous five meets high tech. Right. Um, and we had three kids who who were very involved in things like robotics and... Um, and I wanted to have a series that used cutting-edge technology, like things that weren't going to be commercially available for several years, but which were in development mm-hmm. in universities. Um, and, and I'm a new scientist reader, and I just kept my eye open for things that looked interesting. Mm-hmm. And Scum of the Earth comes out of research into using bacteria as biosensors for pollution where um, they, they genetically engineer particular bacteria to turn different colours depending on what chemicals are in the liquid or in the water. And that's at, at early stage of research. Now, it was even earlier when I actually wrote the book. Um, but that's where it came from. It came out of that research. Mm. You're obviously very well read. What are you reading now? I'm reading a, a mystery story set in World War Two in New York called The War Against Miss Winter. The War Against? Miss Winter. Right. The main character is Rosie Winter. Mm-hmm. And it's set in, I think, 1942, 43, something like that. So I read a lot of... When I'm writing, because I'm writing the third book in the Castings trilogy at the moment, and when I'm reading writing fantasy, I can't read fantasy. Mm. So I read a lot of mystery stories. While I did. <laughs> Why can't you read fantasy when you're writing fantasy? Um, it's a bit like going to another country and starting to talk with their accent. <laughs> I, I end up writing a pastiche of whoever I'm reading at the moment. Right. And, um, that, that's not good, you know. Obviously, you want to write with your own voice. Mm. Uh, so I've never been able to finish a Proust, for example, because his style is so strong that no matter what I'm writing, it ends up sounding like bad Proust. <laughs> um, and, yeah, there are a number of writers who, who um, affect me like that that I just can't read at all while I'm writing. Uh, and at the moment, I'm writing 
a lot, so um, I don't get to read them. But um, I find mystery stories tend to have a much plainer style. Right. Uh, and so it doesn't tend to affect me in the same way. Now, you've written other books in a series of books, such as The Murderer's Apprentice in the Quintaris Chronicles. What's that like when you're actually sort of joining in something that's already been created? Well, it was lots of fun. Um, Paul Collins and Michael Pryor uh, approached me to do it. That's how you get invited into Quintaris. Mm -hmm. And... um, they had come up with such a great concept. I mean, the, the idea is that the medieval city and outside the city are a number of caves called the Rift Caves, which take you into other worlds. So you can you can go anywhere. You can have a fantasy story. There is magic in Quintaris, but you can also have a science fiction story, which is what I ended up doing. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, so you have enormous flexibility um, and, and a lot of the hard work of establishing place and character has been done for you. So um, it was actually a lot of fun to do. And I used to work at the Powerhouse Museum and, and write scripts for the audiovisual productions that they have there, one of which was about the Bolton and Watt steam engine. And I did a lot of research then into early industrialization. Um, steam power taking over in England mm. in the 1700s and early 1800s. And um, that's, I used that research in writing The Murderer's Apprentice. So the world that they go to is a world where this, this is just starting to happen, where the factory system is just being set up. So that was, that was nice to be able to use stuff that had interested me for a long time. Mm. Now you mentioned that you are on you are writing the third book in the Castings trilogy. Have you thought beyond that yet? Um yes, my publishers and I have agreed that the next book will be a standalone book, not right. part of the trilogy, um but it will be in the same universe. Oh, I see. So you're going to continue the story or yeah, how? No, no, it's a, it's a new story. Uh-huh. Um you certainly can read that book without having read the trilogy. It's got it's got a couple of crossover characters, but they're minor characters. So the major character, um, there are two major characters, one of which is a baby in the trilogy. Right. And the other hasn't been born yet. Have you already thought it through? Do you already know what's going to happen? Uh, no. <laughs> <laughs> Have you got the first line? <laughs> um, I'm, I've, got a, I've got a title. Uh, <laughs> I've, got, I've got a theme. I know what the book's about. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, because it's come out of issues that are raised in the trilogy, although it doesn't directly have anything to do with the events of the trilogy. Right. So, so something has happened in the writing of Deep Water, and I've thought that's something I'd like to explore further. Right. But it's not relevant to this story. Are you always writing? Like, once something's over, do you, are you straight on to the next one? Or yeah, but usually not the same book I like I, writing the trilogy has been interesting because I've had to start writing again straight away mm. uh, just to make the deadline um, but uh, I've what I would normally do is work on a different project so uh, I would it would go adult kid yeah book you know um, so so in the gap between the second and the third book I worked on the first draft of a children's story so sure. um, but yes 
I am always writing. Now, you also teach creative writing at the Sydney Writers' Centre. What do you enjoy most about teaching? Because I know you do enjoy it. <laughs> I do. I love to teach. Um, partly, I think it's sharing the enthusiasm of the people who come. And we, we get a lot of beginners, people who really don't know anything about writing at all. Often people who've never finished even a first short story. They're, they're people who are interested and think they would like to write and they're scared of starting and so they, they seek help. And I think possibly the most rewarding is by the end of, of the course, to see that they are in fact writing, that they're going home and not just doing the exercises that I set them, but um, actively working on stories of their own. Quite often they'll talk about something taking off from one of the exercises and, and turning into a story that has its own life. Mm. And I think that's very exciting, I mm. think, to get people going to see their satisfaction in the creative work that they're doing. Um, and the other thing I really like is getting out of the house and talking to grown-ups. <laughs> <laughs> as a writer and a mum, mostly the only adults I see are other children's mothers yes. or fathers when you go to pick the kids up. Um, and so I really do enjoy getting out of the house and talking about something that I'm interested in mm. uh, and that other people are interested in too that doesn't have to do with, with domestic affairs or, or what's happening at school or <laughs> soccer, you know. Um, so, so I, you know, being honest, that, <laughs> that's actually quite a valuable part of being a teacher for me. Um, and, and I do enjoy it. Now, as a writer who has approached all sorts of writing from non-fiction, young adults and now adults, what advice would you give to people who, you know, want to follow in your footsteps really, who want to write? Well, they should come to our class, obviously. Of course. <laughs> um, no, the, I guess, in a sense, that is my first advice because whether it's it's a class at the Sydney Writers' Centre or a local workshop group or uh, a group at your library or, you know, somewhere, well, the, the first advice I would give is find a community mm. because I think it's very, very difficult to write in isolation. Uh, I have a workshop group that I have been working with for, since 1994 mm. and that was part of my master's group. We were, we were uh, It was a requirement of the master's that we form a workshop group and it was so valuable to all of us that we kept it going after we finished. Mm. And these are all published writers and people who take their, their craft very seriously and we all believe that workshopping helps us enormously. So my first advice would be to find people who take writing seriously and who are interested in writing as a craft. And it is hard to do that amongst your friendship group. You, know, you, you do need to look out past there. So part of that is starting to go to events like writers' festivals and programs on at various places um, or getting involved in a course or getting involved in a local workshop group or getting online. There are various online groups um, and finding people who who can say more than, oh, yeah, I really liked it or I don't know, it didn't work, but I don't know why. Mm. Uh, and I think the great advantage of doing a class together 
is that you have you come out at the other end with a common language mm. and, and a way of addressing problems that makes sense so that you can talk about it being a structural problem or you can talk about it being a problem of characterization um, because a lot of the time people look at their work and they know it's not working and they don't know why because mm. they don't actually have the tools to analyze what they've done and really that's what we aim to do in that introductory course is primarily give people a way of thinking about writing that lets them look at what they're doing so they can figure out what might not be working mm. uh, and also ways of approaching tasks within writing um, that, that might jump start them or get them over hurdles or um, just, you know get them past a problem mm. uh, and I think that that's much harder to do on your own so my first advice would be find a community mm. And my second advice would be listen to what people are saying about your work. Mm. And if people are not understanding your artistic vision, that's your fault. Mm. Because you are the artist and it's your job to communicate your vision. So if six people read your work and five people tell you that your character is not believable, it's because your character is not believable. Mm. Uh, and you need to take that on board and not blame other people for not understanding what you haven't managed to achieve. Mm. And that sounds harsh, but that objectivity is the best tool you can have as a professional writer. Mm. You know, in my last book, um, I had to throw away, you know, 10,000 words uh, at the request of my editor. Is that difficult? It was difficult because it was of those 10,000, I really liked about seven. Right. <laughs> and, and I said to her, "Can I? I think I know how I can solve the problem without losing this section. Can I have a go at that?" And she said, "Certainly." And so I had a go at that. And then they came back and said, "No, that didn't work." Aye. And so we had to. I had to lose a section that I really liked mm. out of the book. But she was right. Um, and once I had rewritten it according to her advice. I realised that it was a stronger story as a consequence. Mm, mm. But you have to listen and you have to be prepared to accept um, that somebody may see the story more clearly than you do. And be prepared to let go, obviously. And be prepared to let go. Um, you know, up to a point, I tried to, tried to fix it <laughs> first, you know. But um, uh, it, it is a question of finding people that you trust as well, obviously, and I trust my editor. People think that once you're a writer, you don't have to rework your stuff. You know, once you're a published writer, you do your first draft and off it goes, and that's not the way it works. You have to rework everything, mm. and um, you would expect to do an absolute minimum of three drafts, um, and that they might be quite substantial drafts. Because it's not just about waiting for inspiration to hit. It's a lot of discipline, isn't it? It is. Inspiration will get you the first chapter, mm. but it, it won't get you a book uh, because inspiration is the easy part. Getting the idea is the easy part. Every writer I know has half a dozen stories that they have ideas for, mm. um, but you have to choose the ones that you're prepared to work for two years. A novel will take you two years of work, generally speaking, yeah. um, as a minimum. Uh, you know, The Black Dress took me five and a half. 
blood ties from the beginning to publication was 11. Um, so, and by the time that story is finished, which is the end of the third book, it will have been 14 years. <laughs> so, you know, you, you've got to be prepared to put in time and effort and sweat. Yeah. And, you know, it's like Edison's 1% inspiration, 99% perspiration. Sure. Um, it's the way it works. And it's, it's as true for writing as it is for any craft. Uh, whether you're making a table or, you know, building a house, mm. it takes time and it takes effort and it takes redoing. And finally, then on that note, because it sounds like such a long process and quite a hard slog, what do you love about what you, what you do? I get to play for a living. Yeah. <laughs> you know, basically what I do is play on paper. I I watch my son, you know, he's six, and I watch my son and his friends play volcanoes or um, Super Mario Brothers or whatever, you know, out in the backyard pretending to be the characters. And, and I, it's the same process. Right. Um, but the difference is that when my son plays with his best friend, they're both there together. And I'm playing with people I don't know. Mm. I'm, I'm creating a game for somebody I've never met to enter into but I have to remember that that's they're there you know they're the reason for the game yes um so I you know I do love that I love that sense that that I get to play for a living and to follow my my deepest in, interests I guess because if that's where you should be writing from the mm. things that matter to you the most um and when people email you or come up to you at a, a session and say, oh, I love that book, there's no feeling like that. Um, the idea that you can connect with people across the other side of the world. Um, you know, I, getting emails from people in the States at the moment because blood ties has just come out there. And um, I, I got a lovely email yesterday from somebody who said that since the last Harry Potter, she hasn't been able to get into into any books and now she's found blood ties and she's really happy. And I thought, well, this is wonderful to have made a difference to somebody's life across the other side of the world. To have made someone happy is a wonderful thing. And, uh, you know, a good book brings people all sorts of emotions um, and being able to make that connection with readers is, is the best. That's the magical part of writing, isn't it? It is. Well, thank you very much for talking to us today, Pamela. My pleasure, Val. It's nice to talk to you. You've been listening to the Sydney Writers' Centre podcast on writers and writing. My name's Valerie Koo. You can find us online, including details about our courses, seminars and online learning, as well as information on our regular competitions where you can win books, movie tickets and literary experiences at www.sydneywriterscentre.com.au or visit me on my personal website, www.sydneywriterscentre.com.au ValerieKoo.com. That's ValerieKoo, K-H-O-O.com. Thank you for listening.